Welcome to the Waypoint What's the Point podcast. I am Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church, and I'm joined by... I'm Lawrence, the lead pastor at Waypoint Church. And I'm Eric. I am associate pastor slash youth pastor. There you go. That's always the youth pastors here. So he's going to give us the real insight because he's the, he's the one hanging with the youth. He's right? the one that does all the work and we all take the credit for yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So uh, just a couple of podcast uh, kind of housekeeping announcements. The first one is we realized that two of the these cool mics that we bought to make us seem cool about podcasting were defective, and we're actually using those today, but <laughs> we're sending them back to the manufacturer and getting new ones. And actually, we found that out because Gina and Lawrence in the Some Great News podcast last week, Gina, who has the ear for music, noticed that we were not sounding accurate. So thank you, Gina. And just for those who have asked, Some Great News will come back. In the future, when we have a lot of great news to It was present. actually sold. So oh, Lawrence yeah, we, sold we, it, yeah, because Krasinski sold his yeah. for well, a couple so mil. You, you said in that episode that you weren't going to sell it. How much did you get it for it? Worth it. So, what, yeah, what oh, did yeah. you get did for you it? Did you sell to a bigger church? Yeah, larger church. Um, oh, wow. I think Hudson negotiated the deal. He yeah. offered um, Your son, sleeping in more and oh. going to bed early. Oh, wow. So, all right. <laughs> That's, so, reasonable. Well, That's reasonable. Yeah. Hopefully, we can buy the rights back or at least have one more episode of some great news. And also for this podcast, we want you to know that we do want to have a lot of voices uh, different uh, church members. We want to have voices from different perspectives, male and female voices, and and, and we're going to bring those people in. But sometimes it's a little harder during quarantine. So let you know that it, we don't always want it to be the three of us. Actually, we had a plan for this week's podcast. It was actually supposed to be my friend, Pastor Chuck Reed from Rebuild Fellowship, was going to be our guest. We were going to talk about um, race and um, what's going on in our day right now. But he had a family emergency that wasn't able to make it. So that's actually going to be next week's podcast. So for this week, I thought I was off the hook because I'm preaching this week. We're going to talk about the hard passages in Deuteronomy and the hard passages in Joshua. And I love giving them to Pastor Danny. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, great, Lawrence. I thought I had a week off and I had a little more time to prepare and how to help people process the Canaanite conquest and this this term, this devotion, completely destroy, utterly destroy, that shows up in Deuteronomy 2 and then again in Deuteronomy 7 and then in Deuteronomy, uh, I think, twenty chapter 20 and then Joshua 2. And, and we're in our Bible reading plan, we're going to get to Joshua and we're going to get to this point where um, you're going to read these passages and you maybe could gloss over them in Deuteronomy because, you know, you read one where God's like, destroy this group of people, but... You know, here's the priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, or love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So you get, in Deuteronomy, you, you get a harsher passage, but then you just read a little bit, and he's like, love the foreigner, or, you know, do you, you might find a passage that you agree with more, so, so it's not as hard to read Deuteronomy, even though those passages are hard, and that's what this podcast is about. We're going to talk about that. But before we do that, I'm going to ask Eric and Lawrence and maybe even share a few of my thoughts. But for five months at Waypoint Church, when we started 2020, we started the Pentateuch. We said we are going through the whole Bible in probably about 10 years as a church. And we were like, we need to look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. You know, we teach uh, Old Testament, New Testament. We rotate. And so probably in 10, 12 years, we'll have covered the whole most of scripture and we'll cover the key elements of, of you know every book of the bible and in that we're studying the pentateuch 2020 started off awesome and but the pentateuch's been hard genesis exodus leviticus numbers and then we have covid so just what are some thoughts what has god taught you through studying the pentateuch and particularly studying the pentateuch in light of this has been a very very difficult and unique last three months yeah well 
2020 has just been a weird year. And so I love, I think God timed it out perfectly, just giving us the Pentateuch with this weird season of Genesis felt easy. You know, like there's a lot of exciting stuff. You, like the, the women were having this incredible Jen Wilkin Bible study. There's a lot of excitement going on and it was easy to read the Bible stories. And I wouldn't say easy. Well, not I easy, mean, but there was just a little easier to read Genesis, I feel like. You know, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, Judah, I mean, more, more we got, I got some serious more stories. stories yeah, yeah there were serious stories. questions, but there's more interest. It's almost like, ooh, what happened there? Or there are questions you hear. Mm-hmm. There's more stories, you know? Or I can't believe those idiots did this. Yeah. I would have done differently. Yeah. But exactly. They, but then you get to like, just then you get to access, but and then from Exodus, you're getting into, man, like Numbers and Deuter- Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those are just harder books to read. And that kind of coincided very well with when COVID started, you know. And so we got to this hard place. And um, it's just interesting how God times just stuff so well and gives us, brings us together in this. For me, one of the most interesting things that I see over and over again is I really feel like the, the Pentateuch gets a bum rap when it comes to the idea of commandments and ceremonies mm-hmm. and rituals and everybody's like what's the point of them they don't, they don't they're not important anymore so let's just gloss over them but we see the point was relationship you know I, I, I said this in a sermon once I said you know the phrase that we preach over and over again nowadays is you know it's it's not about religion it's about relationship mm-hmm. well what God was doing for the Israelite people was so incredible was he was intentionally giving them religion for the purpose of relationship yeah mm-hmm. I mean that's what the Israelite people needed that they're amongst, amongst a bunch of people who were trying to explore understand the world around them and they weren't like us worshipping signs Science. Mm-hmm. They were trying to figure out why does the sun look the way it does? Why does rain come when it does? And everybody around them is trying to find a connection to the eternal or some sort of divine. And it was always with religion. It right. Was always religion. And the, so, the the practice of religion didn't justify the relationship. Yeah. That's, that's not right. that's not the the reason for the relationship. It, it God was using the 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 regulations, the instructions to 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 like fan the flame of their affections for him. Right. It wasn't to get relationship, but in order to help them develop relationship. And understand the relationship. They were going to practice religion. They were going to worship something. So first God makes a covenant with Abraham. Then he tells him about it. So he first, God makes the relationship. And then he says, okay, here's how you live. Here's how the relationship is going to look. Because I'm God and you're not. Mm -hmm. Then he makes this covenant with Isaac and he makes this covenant with Jacob. And then he he makes the covenant with with Moses, but first he draws them out and he he parts the Red Sea and he they walk through and he he does the act of deliverance. He says, "I am your God." Then he says, "Okay, now that we have this relationship, I'm affirming this covenant I made with with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now let me give you what you need to do to practice to be my people." And right. I, I I find that fascinating that sometimes we can miss that. As modern people. And I love mm-hmm. that. He's, he's nation building. He's culture building. He's identity building. These are people who kind of lost it. 400 years in slavery. They didn't mm-hmm. know who they were. Mm-hmm. And all their ideas of religion and what to do are going to come from these groups around them that practice infanticide and temple prostitution and all these other things that, that they would think, well, this is what we need to do to be mm-hmm. right with God or the gods. Right. And he's saying, no, I'm giving you... The tabernacle, I'm giving you my presence. I'm going to go before you. Trust me in this relationship. And he makes it so different. They stand so apart. I mean, the idea of the justice that they speak, uh, that's all over the the commandments and all over the rules Mm -hmm. and regulations. There's so much justice out, so different. In a day and age where there's slavery and um, killing of babies, temple prostitution was just the norm. comes a place where you're graceful to the foreigner. You care for the widows and the poor. You... 
Um, you start the whole thing off by saying all men, all people are created in the image of God, right. not just the king and his mm-hmm. son. All people. That's how the whole thing starts off. That's the first thing that God tells well, them about, about themselves. That's where they're yeah. at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting to see God say, no, no, you guys are my people, a separate people, set apart people. And this is what we're about. It shows the character and the nature and the heart of God. It says, this is who we are. Let's establish our culture, our identity together in this. How about you, Eric? What's one thing you've learned yeah, I mean, from this or a couple of thoughts you have on as you studied it for five months? Yeah, I mean, dovetailing into what what Lawrence is just in there saying, just this this reality of, um, you know, we at Waypoint in particular, we we talk a lot about, uh, we we talk in kingdom language, we talk about being foreigners, we talk about uh, being a holy a holy nation, like God is bringing us into uh, his his blessings and promises so that we might be a blessing to the nations, um, but then but but considering the fact that. There's nothing. There's nothing morally successful about Israel. There's there's nothing that would elevate Israel to make you think, okay, this this is the people. Like these these people are, are morally superior than anybody else, and so uh, God chooses them because he, he chooses to give favor. Like he, because God is gracious and and merciful, and and so we, we would say like. God is, uh, or, or we would say that that man is is sinful and and sin is pervasive, but I think as as we are going through it, and especially go, going all the way back to Genesis and, and looking through what we saw happening in in the different stories in Genesis, where you you see, I, I remember us talking about it as a church of maybe maybe it was in particular it's the women talking about it of why why would God use this guy yeah. and why would God use this guy like why. I mean, they're, they're especially Jacob, like yeah. why, like everybody hate, hated Jacob. Which she I, hated Jacob. Like, yeah. I was I was surprised by that. Like I didn't yeah. I didn't know that everybody would would have such strong feelings. But but seeing but seeing the the generational sin, like it's not it wasn't just individual sin that was mm. perpetuating. It was gener, generational sin that that's pervading all of all of the like the whole community. Mm. And you're seeing these these sins of the for for example. Um, Deception, like you see deceit happening with Father Abraham. Right, uh, he's he's deceit. He's lying about his wife Sarah, Same sister, yeah. saying this is my sister. Which you could say, well, like you know, family relations. Like maybe there's like kind of fibbing. He knew what he was doing, but he knew he was, he knew what he's doing. He didn't trust God. He was fearful, and he, he didn't trust God. And and so seeing that. But then you see that happen with Isaac, That's right. and Isaac's being deceptive. And you Stealing see that happen with with Jacob, right? Yeah. Uh, with oh, Jacob, Jacob, yeah, yeah. Steals Jacob, blessing, Jacob steals the blessing. Jacob is usually the one we say he's the deceptive one. Right. But it, like we, we see it happening throughout his his family line, and it's passed on all the way to to it actually goes all the way to Joseph. Joseph mm-hmm. is deceptive with his brothers, but he's he's using his deception. Um, God, God is turning that for good. Right. So, well, so his brothers that, were deceptive to his father about how he what would happen to Joseph, and but yeah. but yeah, his brother his brothers were deceptive in in like making it seem like Joseph had died, and, right. and and so you see like that's just one that's just one thread. Like there's there's hundreds of threads like that of yeah. of seeing the pervasiveness of sin, and yet God is using these people, and so I was just I, I think. I, I knew that from a conceptual level, but but seeing like a, a like an individual thread or, or individual threads being woven throughout the tapestry of of the Pentateuch, yeah. and seeing like wow, but then also relating it back to myself of, I, I like I can relate to these guys like as we're as we're saying why would you choose these people, I I can say the same thing about myself God why would you, 
why would you include me yeah. Um, if we really look deep inside all of us, none of us are worthy. I mean, we all have flaws. I mean, you see passivity w- yeah. with some of them as they're leading their families. I'm like, man, that's, yeah. yeah I, 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 mean, I think the beautiful thing is we don't have to look that deep. I mean, we yeah. see sin prevalent in all of us. And what I love about it, it, was, there's, it wasn't what they did to be morally superior that led them to be instruments of God or his, his chosen people. His, it was just God's favor, God's choice, but then they now in turn are the ones influencing and changing and being a blessing to the world around them. And so we still look at in the face of reality, acknowledging our sin, yeah, we get to be the blessing still. And another thing that I, I learned through this, I mean, I learned so much. I think God's faithfulness, God's presence, a lot of the stuff that you guys were talking about, and I think that came up in some of our kind of informal pastoral dialogues. But I was just thinking about the role of women and how God, first mm-hmm. of all, Genesis 1, he created them, man and woman, he created them. No other mm-hmm. ancient Near East culture says that. It's just not on the radar. They're all made in the image of God. Man and woman are made in the image of God. One is not superior to the other. They have different roles. They have different you know, positions as far as, obviously, the women are going to have the children and the men are going to, you know, will not bear children. But... Once you get to the, you, as the story starts unfolding, you meet Sarah, mm-hmm. and you look at God's faithfulness to her, and you, and then in the even in the barrenness, and we as modern people sometimes we 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 can get lost in those stories or we 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 forget. But to not have a child in their society was basically to be a failure mm-hmm. as a woman, and, and we see God's heart for Sarah, His heart for Rebecca, His heart for Hagar. I mean, Hagar is probably one of the most fascinating characters in the whole Old Testament Mm -hmm. because of, you know, she's kind of this tool of, you know, this problem between Abraham and Sarah not trusting God and God's faithful to her. And and I look at Miriam and and, and Moses' mom and and these other women, even Pharaoh's daughter, how, Mm -hmm. how God is weaving things through. And then as we get into Joshua, even Rahab, which we'll talk about a little later, who's in Jesus' line, and Judah and Tamar, Mm -hmm. the story of Tamar, who's in Jesus' line. Mm -hmm. So God's faithfulness toward women, even in cultures that really degraded women and women had no status. So that's, that's another thing that God's kind of showed me as I as I studied this in more, and deep, I think that's, more deeper. That's so important to note that the culture and any other literature from that time did not have that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not going to elevate women in those ways. Yeah. Maybe the temple prostitute or Yeah, like, like I mean some, when some we other... read it we might miss that because yeah. we're so we're much more uh, a different culture now. Yeah. But back then the, no other culture had that. No other culture had such a prominent role of women and prominent mention of women all throughout, you know. Even if we look at like we you talked about in the sermon the end of Leviticus. Uh, I mean the end of numbers how there's a chapter dedicated to inheritance for women. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. definitely there to protect them in the new, when they get into yeah. the promised land. Yeah. God God was thinking about these things. And Jesus affirms all this. Matthew starts his book off with the four women, you know, in the gene- genealogy of mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, reaffirming God's commitment to to how his kingdom is built differently than the cultures that's then right. and even even cultures now would think yeah. of women. So yeah, that's good. So we did learn a lot. Uh, I'm sure even as we, as we process it more, God's going to keep showing us stuff. And I'm glad we as a church spent five months digging deep. I wish we could have dug deeper. Mm-hmm. We kind of f- flew through yeah. uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but all of us have had a chance to do the Bible reading plan. Or all of us who have had it, I, ho- I hope you've been able to dig deeper. Now we're getting to this the, the meat of today's podcast. 
So you guys love the Old Testament. I know both of you do. I know Lawrence particularly. You, you, you share a lot about a couple professors in, in seminary that really <laughs> just gave you a heart for the Old Testament that you probably didn't even stuff you never would have thought about as just an energetic college kid leading campus ministries doing youth ministry and then and then we start digging deeper into the old testament and when when you get to places like deuteronomy 2 deuteronomy 7 joshua 2 and how are you able to see god's love and mercy even though these are these are passages where people are like god the god of the old i don't like the god of the old testament i just like the god of the new testament Mm -hmm. And, and how have you learned to struggle and then more fully understand the God of the Bible? So I think that's one of the problems that we have is we have a difficulty because our Western kind of modern mindset can tries to relate better to the what we view as the God of the New Testament. And we almost create in our own mind a split, almost as if God had multiple personalities. And I would argue even we we hone in on like Colossians or Romans. Like we don't even want to know the God of Revelation or the right, God of Hebrews right. exactly or the right. God of parts of Matthew because those are hard. Right. But we want to know the... the, the we the, go with the feel-good God. Yeah, yeah. Like we want to focus on the parts of the New Testament that... Right. You know, jump past the ones that are a little, little tougher. Right. You're exactly right. And so I think because of that split that we kind of created through our culture, through the way we try to interpret the Bible, through a combination of what's going on in uh, society mixed in with how we read and interpret, we've created almost a split of who we view God as. God of New Testament, God of Old, as if they're two different personalities, two different people. When in actuality, they're one God. And God's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's moving throughout history and exactly. revealing himself in the new covenant through Jesus. But right, and there's there's elements of his covenant being completed in Jesus and and moving through Jesus, but doesn't mean that he's a different God. Mm-hmm. And I think what what we're seeing in the Old Testament is we're seeing um, examples of situations where we just he's accomplishing a purpose that we don't understand and we don't see. And moving in light of the context of that historical time period. Mm-hmm. And I think those are two elements that we need to kind of look at and understand before we try to dive into an understanding topic like this. Is what's the redemptive historical context? And then what's the actual historical society cultural context? You know, what's the, who's, who's the audience? What's, the, what's happening in that time period? Yeah. Does that make sense, those two things? Yeah. yeah. How mm-hmm. about you, Eric? Any, uh, any thoughts on how you've struggled and how you've been able to more fully just understand God as he's revealed in the entire scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, come back to me. Come back All right, to me. I'll come yeah, back to I'll you. Like... So one thing for me personally is I've, I've really just, I, I remember struggling with, I mean, studying the civil rights movement a little bit. And I was like, hey, I want to learn more about this. And I, I started reading Martin Luther King and a few other people and, and looking at at how they processed, because a lot of it came out of the, the churches, the black churches, particularly the black churches in the south or in the urban areas of the, the northern cities. And as I processed it, I realized they relied heavily on the Exodus and the Old Testament. The prophets, Amos, Isaiah, even Martin Luther King quotes, I think, two Old Testament prophets, Amos and I forget the other one, in the I Have a Dream speech. So to them, they weren't distancing themselves when they were fighting for justice and see they were seeing god as uh, the the exodus the god of the exodus the god of the prophets as the god who fights for justice they weren't getting caught up and well what about this or what about that they could see that the the teachings of jesus come from the old testament and it it was kind of an eye-opener for me and i'd never thought about that before because i kind of grew up thinking 
you know, the God of the Old Testament is really good, but we, we can we can hone in on the God of the New Testament. But that, th- those are some of the things that God began to teach me and, and show me that, you know, it's one, one Old Testament scholar says that it's the blueprint. Like the Old Testament is the blueprint of the building. Like we are mm-hmm. in the building. We actually live in the building. We can see it. We can touch it. But it's really important to know how the building was built. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament is like we're, we're, we're living in the building. We get to enjoy the benefits of it. But if we don't know how the building was built, when something goes wrong, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to see? How do, how do we know how we got here? And I believe the early church relied on the Old Testament was their Bible. And they every time they everything they knew about Jesus they found in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself doesn't discredit it, but he shows how his new covenant, the new covenant that's announced really starting in Deuteronomy 6 and through Ezekiel and Jeremiah is, is proclaimed in Jesus. So I, for me personally, I, I think I just learned to love the Old Testament because you can't really understand the New Testament until you see it in the lens of the Old Testament. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that's one of the beautiful things that the the authors of the New Testament are very intentional about. I mean, they, they, they over and over again acknowledge and allude to and, and use scripture from the Old Testament. If they didn't, mm-hmm. if they didn't care, if it wasn't a blue, they wouldn't keep on alluding to it. They would go, they would say, starting something brand new. Yeah, but the authors of the New Testament all kept on referring to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So it shows how important they thought it was. And who are we then to say, oh, who cares about the Old Testament? When everybody in the New Testament refers to the Old Testament, you know? Yeah. And then I'm thinking about this passage. So it starts in Deuteronomy 2 and Deuteronomy 7. And there's this word, sometimes it's called the ban, the B-A-N. Uh, it's devoted or destroyed or consecrated. It's like destroyed totally in... Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, chapter seven, this is the New Living Translation. It says, "These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you, you must conquer them. You must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy." And it, it names them: the Hittites, the Gerashenites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So, the, so there's this this scene where. You know, God's telling them the the second generation that's going to go conquer in Deuteronomy seven. It's repeated in Deuteronomy twenty, and it's it's definitely in Joshua two. Like annihilate these people completely. So for a lot of people, they get to Joshua two and they're like, I'm done with the Bible. I'm done. And what I want to share, and I'm going to put, actually post an article. It's just three pages. That's going to put this in more of its original context and give all of us. Just, just a better understanding of what this is. But as we look at this, we have to really look at it in its original context, but also look at it in light of, like, why does God single out these seven groups? And why does he ask them to completely eliminate them? And he doesn't say chase them. If, if, if their guys are running off, he doesn't say go hunt them down for years and years. But he does say eliminate all the people in front of you. And in some passages, it even alludes to that you should eliminate the children and the wives. And this is just hard for us to swallow. Any thoughts on this um, as as we we go through this? And, and I think that God keeps bringing me back to why would he do this? Why would he allow this to happen? And I think if you look at it in its original context, as I, I've been just praying through this, and it's just that God's saying... I'm going to fight for you and that these armies are more powerful than you, powerful than you. But the most important thing is these are sinful, 
sinful people with a complicated system of religion and a complicated system of brokenness and sin and temple prostitution and infanticide, but they're also attractive. They're succeeding at what they do. And God's like, you have to stay away from them. You cannot let anything that they do, they will corrupt you. I, I compare it to say a father who knows that his son's going into a situation where there might be drugs. I've heard that heroin is so addictive that it's almost impossible to quit. And if I knew that my child was getting into a situation where they could enter into something with drugs, something with heroin, I would do everything I can to say, avoid it, get rid of it at all costs, do whatever it takes to stay away from this. And if you look at this in its original context, this ban really is that. And we can look at, at Rahab, who actually is supposed to be one of the people who's annihilated, and God spares her because of what she does with when Joshua sends the spies in. And she's actually in Jesus' bloodline. So I think if we put it in his original context, we get a better understanding of what God is doing. And it's still hard. It's one of the harder mm-hmm. passages in the Old Testament. But I think that if we can trust, we can always look to Jesus. When you get to these hard passages, you can say, what did Jesus finally say? Jesus' actual name is Joshua. We say Jesus in English. His name is Joshua. Like he's the commander of the Lord's army. That's his name. So that's why many of his contemporaries thought that he would be the one to conquer and destroy the Roman Empire. What does Jesus do militarily? Nothing. He he says, I'm fighting Satan and, and, and hit the enemies of God are spiritual enemies. And you need to turn your allegiance to me and my kingdom. So my, my best advice for this passage is that's where our hearts need to go. And, and when we think about this in light of the New Testament, we think of this ban, this we must destroy, be devoted to. We think that Jesus does this for us. Jesus fully conquers sin for us and allows us to be devoted to his kingdom. And I don't know, I, this probably won't satisfy most of you, but as I've studied it, this is really what this passage is about. You know, I think when it comes to this passage, and it's it's difficult, there's no way around it. There's a few elements that we need to come, as you were talking about taking into consideration, culturally speaking, um, that extreme language was to show, in my opinion, to show the separateness of God and his people and to, to show the, the, syncret, the, the, the danger of syncretism, the danger of his people, fall, like you were saying, falling into heroin. You know, sure that you guys need to be separate people, yeah. set apart, and so a lot of the language some people could have refer, some some people think that this language is used as as an extreme device to show that this was like no, this is how important this is that you're set apart. This is how extreme you that we had to go to mm-hmm. say you will not fall in because you are set apart people to show the extreme levels of God's holiness and separation. Um, that they, they, they use this extreme language. Other people at other times might try to use this language or use this language like this to, to, to say, well, how do, how do we relate to this now or what kind of battles can we fight? And like, you know, this was a unique time in the redemptive history where God was establishing land, establishing people, and establishing a kingdom in the place. A unique time where God was the commander in chief. So there, and then God was also the judge. 
You know, judging um, unrighteousness and judging the peoples of the world. So these he, groups that did horrible, horrible things. The, he he hones in on these seven groups. And there's a, there's an ability for uh, such a unique time where where God is both commander in chief, God is ruler of a nation, God is separating and establishing his people in a land, but also judging. So God never in any other time does he. I mean, he might, but I can't think of any other time where he uses like this case uses his people to enact judgment like this. Often he'll use other armies, he'll use other situations, but this is the first, the only, one of the few times I see him enacting, using his people to enact judgment. And they are a people with an army that the other armies are going to invade them and kill them right. if they don't. So there's also a defense and an ability for God to make them into a nation. And if you look at Deuteronomy 21, it talks about prisoners of war and it talks about what happens when you have people who who come in from other tribes and how to be generous toward them and gracious the foreigner who lives among you so god's heart isn't murder god's heart isn't war god's heart is holiness and separate apartness for his people and we see that in jesus and sometimes we can get caught up as modern people in reading one part and being like i want nothing to do with this god but i promise you as you read it more and more you be, you'll see god's justice in it and you'll see how the whole scripture fits together and how even this passage can make sense in light of God's redemptive history. Interesting fact, in Judges 3, 5, and 6, all seven of these groups still exist. They don't get annihilated. Maybe some of them ran off during the conquest and they actually corrupt the people and they marry their wives and worship their gods. So it didn't take long. So the very thing that God told them would happen happens. But another cool thing is, is the Hittites Uriah the Hittite is the commander of David's army. Mm-hmm. Actually, David, the, the guy who has God's favor, actually wrongs a Hittite. And God redeems his, his salvation history through Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. So even in the brokenness, even in the sin, God, the point of these stories over and over again, from the Moabites, which are the, the, the descendants of Lot's incest, who they fought, you know, just recently in, in the, the narrative in De- early Deuteronomy and, and Numbers. All these stories is God just redeeming broken people and calling for himself a people. But until the new covenant comes and God can really circumcise our hearts, which the idea begins in Deuteronomy and is in fulfill, fulfillment in Christ, Jesus finally circumcises our hearts so that mm-hmm. we can fully be his people. I mean, you even see in Deuteronomy 7, and what you're saying in Joshua, we see examples of actual all the people not being wiped out. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a warning against not to marry into those people. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's very interesting so that maybe that gives credibility to the idea that this is extreme language that's being used to say, no, that has nothing to do with them. Separate yourselves completely from that. And actually, this word we translate into devoted, destroyed, utterly destroyed, and consecrate. That's how unique this word is. And it's never used in the New Testament. It's only used once, and it's used quoting the Old Testament. So it's, it's, it's a very unique word where God's like, in this time in history, to be my people, you cannot worship these gods, and you cannot do anything that they do. They mm-hmm. will turn you away. They, they are part of the kingdom of Satan, that I, and God is fighting. And in Jesus, he does fight them again. Mm-hmm. But he never asks us to draw a sword. Mm-hmm. He always asks us to fight the spiritual battle. Well, when Peter drew the sword against the Roman, you know, mm-hmm. what did Jesus tell him to do? He says, put it down. Mm-hmm. And Paul tells us clearly that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but 
but it's against the spiritual forces. So as we look at this, we can see it in redemptive history and be like, yes, at that time, it was terrible. But those were terrible people too, and God was working through it. And when we, the new Joshua comes, we don't, we don't have to do this. And we, we can literally follow the Sermon on the Mount. And you, you see too, like in, in, there's that one part in Genesis where it, God is making this promise to Abraham where he's, he's going to give them this land. Like he's promising to give them the land of Canaan, but not yet. Uh, because he's in the fullness of time that they're gonna these these people that he, he's being gracious to them like he's he's being like he's he's withholding judgment he's waiting but then God also knows the hearts of man like he knows he knows that he knows what will happen if we give ourselves over to the things that we that we desire and and so he's he's being consistent in that like he's he's going he's letting them uh, he's letting their hearts be filled with the things that they desire, but he also knows the dangers of it. And and so that's where we see this warning. There's this temptation, there's this pool where if if the Israelites, if they give in to these things, then they will they, they will be led astray. But even still, even even in the midst of that, God's promises are, are never in jeopardy. That that even even still uh, th- there's, you know, we, we can make a, a ruin of so many things, you know, we, uh, even going back to this idea of, of generational sin, of, of communal sin, of, of personal sin. Um, but yet, even, even in that, like, it, it's, it's kind of amazing how, I, I don't know, like, I, I think about from a personal standpoint, like, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I'm so small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And yet, if you, if you think about the, Again, the pervasiveness of sin, how you can impact so so much, but that even still, God's promises are never in jeopardy. Like He He is still able to 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 turn even human sinfulness for good. And it, you know, even as you're you're alluding to Danny with with Uriah the Hittite, and and God is God brings redemption in, in these ways that He's still He's still a, God. God is a God who's He's after our hearts. He, he desires that we know him. He he wants us to to desire holiness, and I think you know as we talk about the Western mind, we, we're so prone to think of ourselves as as good, as morally good, and we put God on on in the dock, right? God like, on trial. God, yeah. God's on trial. He's the one. He's the one who needs to prove himself. Why why is why is that? Like why why not us? Why 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 would we not think of ourselves in that stand in, in that position of but but not even in the sense of being on trial, but like, God, show me my heart. And God shouldn't even have to be on trial, but the amazing thing is he went on trial, he stood trial, he took the penalty, mm-hmm. and, and right. all this battle army against, this battle against sin that Joshua failed to fight, that the people failed to fight, Jesus wins on the cross, and he yep. absorbs, he becomes the, the, the army, God literally fights himself, like Jesus becomes... Joshua himself becomes the person who takes on the sins of the world in this holy war so that we can be free and we can yeah. enter into yeah. the promised land, enter into his rest. Yeah. The, the Pentateuch is pointing us to the gospel. Yeah, that's the point. That's, that's the good. point. And it's not insignificant that Jesus' name is Joshua mm-hmm. because like, we can never forget that. So my final question to you guys, and, and I, I want you guys at home to hear, we, we're struggling with this too. 
Like I gave Lawrence and Eric articles in advance. We read it. This is hard stuff. Mm-hmm. We're 3,000 years removed from the Canaanite conquest. We're, you know, more than 3,000 years, you know, and we're, we're processing this and we have it in the Hebrew languages, Hebrew poetry. We're trying to put it all the pieces together. But my question to you guys, and I'm, I want to answer this too briefly, is, is just what do you say to the person at home who's struggling? when they come to a passage and they're, they're just struggling, like what encouragement do you have for them? Tim Keller has a quote. Um, I'm not going to quote it correctly completely, but something along the lines of... Paraphrasing Tim Keller. Yeah, this is paraphrasing Tim Keller. And it becomes your quote, right? Right. Oh, this is now a Lawrence quote. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, with something along the lines of, if your God never dis- disagrees with you, it might be that you're worshiping an idolized version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I mean, if we don't have questions, if we don't... Um, if we don't ever run these passages that are just difficult for us to understand, and if our God just agrees with everything that we already believe and already say that we agree with, and doesn't shape us or turn us or move us in, in any way, uh, I, I look at myself, I know, man, I don't want my God to think just like me because I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't have all the answers. And so I think I, I start with there. Start with that premise of like, you know, come with come with humility mm-hmm. to the scriptures and to difficult texts. You know, come with, um, don't, like you say, we're not putting God on trial here, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's one of my first steps of encouragement. And then d- deconstruct, ask questions in, in the beauty of the church, in the safety of the yeah, church. Yeah, we want you yeah. guys to ask questions. We, we want you to struggle with this. If you don't struggle with the Canaanite conquest where it says kill women and children, what kind of God is that? Then maybe you're just glossing over it. And one day you're going to read that passage and you're going to have to reconcile that and say, okay, God, who are you? Who are you? And and are you really the God that, are you really trustworthy? And I think you'll find God to be trustworthy when you look at the redemptive story, but it's okay to come to these places and struggle. And that's what, that's what God's given us a church for. I mean, he's not saying here, take the Bible, just you by yourself and go read the Bible, figure it all out. He's saying, read the Bible in context of family, in context mm-hmm. of the body, in context of the church together. 2,000 mm-hmm. years of us hashing yeah. this out and struggling. And, you know, even at the time of Christ, there already was commentary on the Old Testament in, he- in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language. Like they've already been fleshing this stuff out, really trying to know God, looking at these these texts that he you know that he's given us to to understand him. Yeah, I've done youth ministry for so long, and I I, I know of I know so many stories of instances of other people who you know they they're told their whole lives just oh just trust God or gloss over it or they kind of brush it under the rug these difficult questions and stuff. Then they go off to college and they become adults and they're like oh my gosh I've never I don't know how to handle these questions. Let that never be at Waypoint Church. Yeah, I mean, and as as we deal with hard questions, I mean, I remember I remember being in high school and being the, the kid in in the youth group who was trying to ask the que- like my goal was to ask a question that the the leaders would say I don't know, like that I was trying to ask those questions. <laughs> and now you're a youth pastor because all and I, our kids all I wanted them to do <laughs> all I wanted to do was get a question that they didn't know the answer to. Like I didn't care about the answer. I just wanted them to not know the answer. Yeah. And and so, but but I think that. As we ask questions, as we as we wrestle through it, um, we shouldn't we shouldn't expect or be satisfied with pat answers. Like not every question we ask should have a pat answer that we can answer. Like not everything is answerable in in like two seconds. We we shouldn't. We're we're a generation. We're a culture right now that loves tweets yeah. and, and we love pithy sayings. We love uh, we love mic drops, but it. it 
to, to understand what God's doing in the context of his word, in the context of redemptive history, requires work. And, and so I think, I think the, the way forward for us in, in growth and maturity and spiritual maturity is that we press in, that we, um, that we not be alarmed when we don't know the answers to things, um, that we not be frustrated that it takes a long time to, to process through answers, um, that we're charitable as we try to push, push uh, things down the road and, and just like as we try to progress and, and understand, okay, what is God doing here? Um, let, let's not be let's not be rash in making decisions, um, but let's let's press in and, and seek God's word to, to seek understanding, to seek to, to allow His Spirit to to reveal uh, the truth of his, of His word and who He is to us. And and as you got, as you guys are saying, let's do that in in the context of community where we we don't have to be ashamed of. Uh, hard questions. We don't have to feel guilty that we don't know the answers to them. We don't. We don't even have to um, to be standoffish or or take this approach of, okay, I don't. I, you're you're challenging me, so I'm my sole devotion is to prove you wrong. Like those those are not postures of humility. Those aren't those aren't. You're not going to grow in doing that. You're you're going to turn people off, and you may even make non-essential things uh, essential. You may raise secondary, tertiary issues into primary things. Um, and so we need to be careful and, and do it. We need to guard, let, let what is essential be essential. Let's let what, what is major be major. And then let's work through the details together with charity and grace and humility as, as we try to process and grow together with, with our, de- our desire is that, uh, God grows us, that, that we don't have weak and, and simple answers, but we have uh, the truth of God's Word and, and Him guiding us. And it would have been a lot easier for us just to not do the Bible reading plan and just generally ignore the Old Testament, poke, hone in on a few feel-good passages, but that's not... We want you to see the full, redemptive, beautiful picture of who Christ is and how the Gospel starts in the Pentateuch and continues on through the Israel's failures and and into the the prophets who point us to Jesus. And mm. that's why we're here. We love you guys. I'm going to end with uh, a really powerful passage from uh, Colossians chapter 1. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I'm repeating that. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on hev- on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We can always look to Jesus. That's okay. When I was a youth pastor, the the joke was like 50% of the questions I ask, the answer, if you just say Jesus, you're going to get it right. And that's okay. So when you're struggling with Joshua, you're struggling with the stuff, it's okay to go back and say, God, I don't understand, but you can look to Jesus. And that's okay. What, like literally Moses said, as they held up the snake to be healed, the, the, the image of the snake, 
Jesus says, I will be lifted up. You can look to me and be healed. So it's okay. We're here. We're working together. But remember that through his blood shed on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins and God is with us. So guys, have a great week. This dialogue is not over, but we're so grateful for you that we can learn and grow and love God together and see his big picture of redemptive history as the local church. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. And uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Love you guys.